that help? Yeah, probably does. Good to be with you. Good to see you, at least part of you, from behind those masks. We're continuing, and as I said two weeks ago, we are close to finishing our extended series on the God who is here. In fact, next week will be the final uh, message in that series. Uh, two weeks ago, when we were together, we looked at Revelation 21, and uh, we called that the end of the story, uh, <clears throat> the end which also marks the beginning, but uh, the end as far as the Bible is concerned, this story of the God who is here with us and his purposes and his actions. And uh, we noted my little uh, machine here is not working. Ah, I know why too. Uh, we noted that the story is uh, what, or the Bible is, what some people have called uh, the first hyperlinked text in history. That's a bit anachronistic, but, but what they're getting at is this extraordinary phenomenon that the Bible is written over uh, hundreds of years by a variety of authors, but there is a strange unity about it, and part of that unity is that each of the successive writers is interacting with the people who have gone before. So it's like an extended, centuries-long conversation. And uh, in fact, uh, as this interesting diagram suggests, it's interconnected some 65,000 cross-references as these people engage God, but they engage one another in talking about this story. And we saw that, that the main themes of that story come together in the last chapters of the Bible. So John, in his old age, looks back and is constantly picking up allusions to earlier parts of the story. And we noted a couple main themes uh, of the story that come together in John's concluding visions. The new heavens and the new earth, which obviously goes back all the way to the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then it picks up also the prophet Isaiah. In fact, those are his words. Isaiah, in Isaiah 65, sees a new heavens and a new earth that God is bringing about. So John, at the end now, says, all right, the vision I'm giving you is a vision of the future when all God's purposes, all his creation intentions are brought to fruition in this new reality. But the new heavens and new earth can then also, in a change of vision, be described by John as a new Jerusalem. And uh, that Jerusalem theme, of course, runs all the way through the Bible from Genesis 14 uh, right on through. Jerusalem is especially the city where God dwells with his people. And so John has this vision of a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, coming down to earth, 
it's, uh, it's this extraordinary city where uh, its, its value is suggested by all the precious jewels that John sees making up the city. The streets of gold, the 12 gates of the city, which are giant pearls. The city has strange dimensions. It's a cube. And last time we spoke together, it was the, uh, you know, the riddle of the day was, where in the Old Testament is there a cube? What is John alluding to here? What's the significance? And some of you came up with it. Uh, that, that was great. The only cube that I'm aware of in the Old Testament is the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or later in Solomon's temple. The Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, where God was said to dwell between over the Ark and between the, the wings of the cherubim. <clears throat> and that cube, that room, was one that could only be entered once a year only by the, by the high priest. Now John has a vision in the end that the New Jerusalem in its entirety is a cube. And God dwells in this gigantic holy of holies, if you will, and the gates of the city are always open so that anyone may have access into the city and access into the presence of God. It's a beautiful thing. That in the end, God's intention is that everyone who's a citizen of that city, a participant in the new heavens and the new earth, everyone has access directly to God. And then the other picture that is so beautiful and weaves through the book of Revelation right to the end <clears throat> is the image of the bride and the bridegroom and the wedding feast that is about to take place when the love, uh, the love story of the ages finds its consummation and culmination in that day. The bride and the bridegroom are united together. So, we looked at all these, and then we noted that as we talked various times in this study, that as we read these stories and follow them along, they're all taking us to one central place. And the place it takes us to, or we should say the person it takes us to, the events it takes us to, is the Messiah, the Anointed One. Israel's king. And, and so we find in the book of Revelation this interrelated theme of the Messiah as the one who suffers. So the cross is there very powerfully, but also as the one who has been raised from the dead and now is the reigning king who will bring about the new heavens and the earth. And indeed, we as his people will reign with him. That, uh, that connection, that paradox between cross and crown is, uh, is very dramatically portrayed by John in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5, John sees uh, God seated upon the throne. 
and in his hand is a scroll written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And the scroll evidently represents the, uh, the events that are about to shortly take place. If you will, the culmination of history. And a voice cries out, an angel cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals? And uh, John says that as he beheld that scene, he wept because there was nobody who could do that. There was no one worthy to do that until one of the 24 elders that surround the throne said to him, don't weep. Don't weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. He has won the victory, and he is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals. And, and then you have this striking statement by John. He's heard this pronouncement, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah was the kingly tribe in the Old Testament. The root of David, so this is the heir of David's kingdom, he has prevailed. And John says, then I saw a lamb, as if it had been freshly slain. And the, and the contrast there is so dramatic, right? He's looking for the lion. He's looking for David's heir, the king. And what he sees is the slain lamb. Cross and crown go together right to the end of the story. And all of the bits of the Old Testament, if we can say it that way, come together in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So today I want to spend a few minutes looking at the last chapter of the Bible under this theme, I am coming soon, which is a phrase which you'll notice occurs three times in this chapter. And as before, I have uh, I've highlighted with yellow and green. And each time that you see that, it's another one of those hyperlinked texts, right? It's a reference to somewhere earlier in the story. So follow along then. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angels to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right, and let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I'm the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen. So, what we have in the opening part of this last chapter is some more about the city. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but the description thus far in chapter 21 is, what shall I say, beautiful but cold. <laughs> it's uh, a lot of shiny stuff and jewels and all the rest, but it, it feels a little bit cold. And uh, at this point, then, John rectifies that. Because when he now goes on to talk further about this city, what he emphasizes is that in the city there is life. There is life in abundance. The, uh, the cornucopia is a great symbol of that, isn't it? Uh, all kinds of fruits. And indeed, John talks about that uh, as he describes the life of a city. <clears throat> so notice a couple things that he says about it. He says that in his vision, he sees the river of the water of life flowing down from the throne of God down the main street of the city. 
Now that, uh, that image is a powerful one. It takes us back to Genesis again, does it not? It takes us back to Genesis 2, where we have that description of the original situation in which Adam and Eve found themselves. The situation of paradise, the garden. Eden is <clears throat> the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament. And we're told that next to Eden was this park or this garden. And it was in the garden that Adam and Eve had their life and their responsibility. And part of the description says that there was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden, to bring moisture and life to the garden. So here in John's vision of the great city, we've got a river again. And it's specifically described as the river of the water of life. And the picture we're getting of this city now is that it's not only a city, but it's a garden. Moreover, John tells us that on each side of the river is the tree of life, or maybe we should say the trees of life. It's not quite clear in the image how if you had a single tree, it would be on both sides of the river, right? <clears throat> but in, in this kind of literature, this dramatic apocalyptic literature, things don't always quite work out easily for your minds. Uh, why the both sides of the river? Well, it seems that he's not only pulling in information from Genesis chapter 2, where it talks about the, the two trees, remember, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Uh, that was the tree that Adam and Eve lost access to when they were cast out of the garden. It was an angel with a, with a sword to protect the way to the tree of life. Well, now in the city that's ahead of us, the way is opened to the tree of life again. Or, as I say, maybe it's the, the trees of life. Because it doesn't seem that John is only looking at Genesis 3. It also looks as if he's thinking about Ezekiel chapter 47. Remember, Ezekiel was a prophet of the, uh, the exile in Babylon. And in exile, the Jews grieved over the fact that not only had Jerusalem been destroyed, but the temple had been sacked and burned, so they didn't have a place. Even if they could get back, there was no ready place to worship. And Ezekiel, then, at the end of his prophecy, uh, there's several chapters where he has a vision of another temple, a new temple. And, and part of that vision in chapter 47 is that as he looks at Jerusalem and this new temple, he said there is a stream of water that flows out from under the temple, and it flows eastward out of the city uh, all the way down to the Dead Sea. And it grows in volume as it goes, and where it meets the Dead Sea, among other things, he sees <clears throat> that the river is surrounded by fruit trees. And the fruit trees bear fruit every month. 
They not only bear fruit every month, but we're told that the leaves of that tree <clears throat> are for healing. The fruit is good, but the, but the leaves even are beneficial for healing. So John seems to be thinking about this. Because he has trees on both sides of the river, just like Ezekiel. And for John also, the leaves of the tree are for healing. And then he adds, not just for healing, but healing for the nations. In Ezekiel, the healing seems to be primarily focused on the Jewish people, on Israel. They're in Babylon for their sins, and part of what God is going to provide is healing for them and forgiveness and restoration. But, but when John thinks of this, he thinks about something in universal, worldwide scope. Access to the tree of life again. After all those long centuries, God will have his purpose that people like you and me are made for life. We're made to have access to the tree of life. And that life will be full. It will bring healing, indeed, to the world. And then the final thing he talks about in regard to this abundance of life is that there's no more curse. Obviously, picking up Genesis chapter 3 and the first rebellion of Adam and Eve and what fell upon not only Adam and Eve, but fell upon the world, the curse. Adam is going to have to work intensively with difficulty to get his food and resources out of the earth. The earth is going to bring forth uh, thistles and thorns. John has a vision of a city, a new heavens, a new earth, where there is no more curse. Again, we're reminded that this story is always headed someplace, isn't it? The biblical writers are very aware that when Jesus died, he died under the curse. Symbolized by the, the crown of thorns that was put upon his head and beat into his skull. But more broadly, the curse, not just of the curse on the ground, but the curse on human beings, the curse of death. And he bears that. So the Apostle Paul can say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. There's no curse in that city because there is an abundance of life. The other thing about the city that is striking is what I'm going to call the unmediated presence of God. <clears throat> Let me explain that for a minute. It seems to me that when, when John says, in this city, God's servants will serve him and they will see his face, they were picking up on earlier parts of the story again. Particularly, we're picking up on Exodus chapter 33, when Moses, in a time of discouragement, discouraged over 
God's judgment upon the people of Israel because of their idolatry, uh, Moses, in a time of discouragement, says to God, Now show me your glory. And he gets an interesting response from the Lord. The Lord says, uh, uh, I'm going to pass by with all my goodness and and as I do so, you need to understand that what can happen is you can't see my face. Because nobody can see my face and live. Now what's happening there? Moses is saying, I think, God, show me your glory. I want... I want an exposure to your presence that is 100%. Nothing less will do for me in this time of fear and discouragement. I want 100% God. And the Lord said, well, I, I will come by and I will give you an exposure to my goodness but it cannot be as full as you want it to be. And I think that's what's involved in this seeing God's face. God says, nobody can see my face and live. Uh, it's, as if, it's as if God's saying, uh, Moses, I have to be masked when I'm with you. Which seems appropriate, doesn't it? I have to wear a mask because there'd be danger for you if you were to be exposed to the full power of my presence. Now that theme runs through the Bible, pretty much beginning to end. So the Apostle Paul can say, when he's talking about God, he describes God as the one whom no one has seen or can see. But now, at the end, John says, his servants will serve him and they will see his face. There is a directness of the relationship of God and his people that is held out as the vision of the end that again is another aspect of the fullness of life, the fullness of what God designed us for in the beginning, that, that we as human beings should be full participants in the reality of his life. His servants will see his face. So that's the city. Let's take a couple of minutes then and think about this statement that the time is near. Three times in this chapter, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Now what do we make of that? Almost 2,000 years since John wrote that, huh? I am coming soon. 
How so? Does, uh, does 2,000 years <clears throat> disqualify I am coming soon? Certainly, certainly there's plenty of people out there who would say yes. <clears throat> if you read 2 Peter chapter 3, there's indication that already in Peter's lifetime, which was shorter than John's, Already in his lifetime, there were some people who were saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were since the beginning of the creation. <clears throat> what does it mean that Jesus is coming soon? I'm a baby boomer. Most of you know that. I'm a post-war baby. Born in 1948, which was the same year that Israel acquired statehood. And there was enormous excitement in the Christian community then because that was seen as a fulfillment of certain prophetic scriptures which talked about the regathering of the nation of Israel. <clears throat> Uh, so there was a lo lot of excitement, a lot of prophecy conferences. I remember my grandfather, who, I'm guessing he was in his 50s at that time, a young man as I think about it now, and uh, I can remember him, and this probably would have been in the 1950s, I can remember him saying, uh, almost word for word, I find it hard to believe that I will not be alive to see the coming of the Lord. I remember him saying that. <clears throat> He's been gone for 35 years. So what does this uh, I am coming soon mean? Well, uh, I'd say it means two things. One, it certainly means be ready. Be prepared for the return of the Lord, in part because you don't know when it is going to happen. The I am coming soon is, is a kind of encouragement to prepare this. Because it might be in our experience and life, it might be very soon, or from the standpoint of our short lives, it may seem delayed, it may appear to wait, as it did to some in the New Testament period. But the theme certainly is to be ready. <clears throat> and then with that, there's the emphasis that we should be patient. Be ready because it may be tomorrow. But be patient because there may be a time delay. And the Jesus who says, I'm coming soon, is also the Jesus who in Matthew 24 and 25 told uh, three different parables, all of which contained this theme of delay and of waiting. For example, he talked about uh, a master of a household who went away on a journey. And before he left, 
he uh, called his servants around <clears throat> and gave uh, each of them a certain amount of money according to their abilities with the assumption that they would take that money, which was his, not theirs, and go out and earn a profit. And then he would take an accounting when he came back, which he does, and one of the servants has not been wise in what he has done with it. But the interesting thing is in the story, it specifically says, after a long time. And this is the same Jesus who earlier in Matthew 24 can say things like, this generation will not pass until all these, all these things are accomplished. So there's some, there's some paradox, isn't there, even in the teaching of Jesus about the end coming. But the concluding exhortation, three times repeated in Revelation, is, I'm coming soon. <clears throat> Particularly in answer to the, the martyrs in Revelation who cry out to God, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? And what are they told? They're told to be patient. But they're also told by the Lord, I'm coming soon. So hang on. Be steadfast in your confession of faith. And be ready, because, once again, the teaching of Jesus and of Paul, because when he does come, he will come like the thief in the night that many will not be ready or prepared. So for you and me, be patient, be ready. And then this kind of strange statement in verses 10 and 11. The angel who has been interpreting a lot of things for John says to him, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. <clears throat> Strange statement, isn't it? With all the exhortation in Scripture to turn back to God, to repent, to change our ways, here's something it sounds like. All right? Time's almost up. Let the evil continue to do evil. So scholars wrestle with this. What, what are we to make out of that? Here is a, uh, a pretty helpful statement from uh, Michael Wilcock in his book on Revelation. He says, the words indicate the fixity of the state in which both good and evil will find themselves. There will have come a time when change will be impossible, when no further opportunity will be given for repentance on the one hand or for apostasy on the other. If the judgment is the end and ushers in this final state of permanent righteousness or unrighteousness, it follows that on the one, <clears throat> one hand we have no grounds for hope in any kind of second chance or reincarnation and must take seriously this present life as the only opportunity for a change of heart. <clears throat> 
Now, if that's, if that's the right interpretation, and it may well be, then what it's saying is, we are near the end. It's time for the events of the scroll to unfold themselves, which brings us to the final judgment, and at the final judgment, there is no further possibility for change. And that these words apply particularly to that final judgment. Once that takes place, the evil are fixed in their evil, and the righteous are fixed in their righteousness. Some have wondered, I, I wonder myself, whether there is any application of this prior to the judgment. Is it possible that there come with some people at least a, a fixity of their character such that change becomes virtually impossible? <clears throat> I've listened uh, numerous times to uh, Christopher Hitchens if you know that name, he's one of the uh, angrier of the new atheists. He passed away just a few years ago of esophageal cancer. And he did interviews right up to the end. And uh, he had a, a lot of Christians praying for him that he would uh, convert in the end. And he was interviewed about that several times. You know, how, how do you respond to this idea that Christians are praying for you? Uh, he didn't respond well. And, uh, and among other things, he really said, look, if anything should happen, I should lose my mind or something and make some sort of a deathbed profession. Uh, I suppose that could happen, but from, from my perspective, uh, don't take that seriously. I don't expect that to happen. And there was, uh, he was a brilliant man and uh, engaging to listen to, but there was a, a hardness there. And I look at something like that and I wonder when I read this kind of a verse, is there a fixity of character that can come about in people's lives even before the judgment, even in this life? And I, I don't know. But it's certainly a, a, a solemn statement, isn't it? Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let the wicked continue to be wicked. Why? Because the end is at hand when no further change is possible. Well, but that's, uh, that's not the end of this chapter, is it? Uh, this is effectively the end. This beautiful statement, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take of the free gift of the water of life. The whole story of the God of the Bible is about a God who invites. Even after sin enters in and spoils the relationship between God and his creature, <clears throat> there's always this inviting. Come back, return. Come and drink of the free gift of eternal life. Very similar to Jesus in John chapter 7. Whoever is thirsty, let him come and drink. Same from the prophet Isaiah. 
Behold, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Him who has no money, come, buy and drink. That's the invitation to come. To you and me, to come. So have you come? And aren't you continuing to come? To come to the water of life and to drink and to take life into yourself as the free gift of God with that hope, expectation, confidence, and perseverance to the end for that day when the city comes down from heaven, when we enter by the open gates and there have access once again to the tree of eternal life. That's our hope, folks. That's the end of the story. The end, which is also the beginning of the new story that is beyond anything we can ask or imagine. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Let's pray together. Good to have you with us this week. And and if you have never come, then come today while the doors are still open. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the consistency of this graceful message, the words of love that invite us to come to you. And so we come afresh this day, Lord, trusting that you are near, that your coming is near, and we have a heart's desire to be ready and waiting, expecting you when you come. Thank you for the hope that you've given to us. <clears throat> and even in the midst of the struggles of daily life, keep our attention, Lord, tuned to you, listening for your voice living out of this wonderful hope that you've presented to us. We commit ourselves to you this day. Give us uh, a sense of your presence as we go through the week ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No special music. You're dismissed with music. Thanks, Kamala.